Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. We hope that this message inspires you and helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. So good to be with you again today. If you can't hear me, joking, I know you can all hear me. Because um, there it is, pretty loud. Um, so, so good to be with us. If you're just visiting today, my name is Jono, um, and my wife Chloe and I are the pastors here. We're just stoked to have you with us today as we uh, kick off, well, we continue this, uh, this new series of mind games, and, uh, and, and we're going to pick up from where we left last week, and so if you're joining us online or if this is your first time here, you can feel free to jump on our website and have a listen to where we started last week. But this is really important. The reason we get to spend the next few weeks hearing wisdom from Dr. Russ is because of a lot of tough questions that you and I have to wrestle with in life, and, and often a whole lot of uh, not just practice to everyday life, but a lot of the areas of faith when it comes to our relationship with God, a whole lot of that is outworked in our heads and our thoughts and how we process that. And so we wanted to spend a few weeks talking about this, how to think straight, and hopefully Dr. Russ is going to give a lot of practical examples for how we do that. Um, so I, I became a dad when I was about 31. So there was, a, there was about 20 years of Disney films and cartoons that I completely missed. I never had a chance to watch. It wasn't cool as a teenager or in your 20s watching this stuff. So I just arbitrarily went through life without ever getting to experience these films. Now that my daughter's at an age where she wants to watch some of these stuff, she's into Disney and cartoons, I get to kind of have all this backlog of films now that I can watch. It is amazing. So we're currently like working our way through The Incredibles right now. Okay, we have to like do them in short increments. But like that's an incredible, they're incredible films, right? right? Um, Frozen recently made its introduction into our household, and my daughter can just sing one line over and over and over and over and over and over. Just keep going, let it go, let it go. I can't hold it back anymore. And I'm thinking to myself, yes, neither can I. So, so that's cool. We're learning. I've been warned against Moana. I heard when the kids see that, the song of that will just get in your head. So, um, so this is a great experience. But, but recently we watched a film together that I hadn't seen since I was a kid. So it was cool to rewatch it. And they've just redone it, but in real life. So uh, The Lion King, anyone seen it yet at the films? Like the real life version? Okay, a couple of people. I haven't had the chance yet, but my daughter and I, we sat down and we watched The Lion King. And so it, it, it confronted me with one of those big questions, those existential questions that all these cartoons really deal with, right? But for me, I'm looking through these issues in The Lion King going, hang on a second. It really got me thinking. The, uh, the villain in, in, uh, in The Lion King, we obviously all know his name is Scar. You got it, man. So it got me thinking, hang on a second. His name is Scar, so clearly he's got this scar, scar across his face, right? So that's his name. Then we got me thinking, got me thinking, hang on a second. Did he get like, did he get named in adult life? Like something happened to him and he got scarred, and so he renamed himself Scar so he could identify himself with an injury he had and a permanent marking? Or did he come out with the scar in birth, which is more concerning because then did his parents see that he was scarred and deformed, and so decided we're gonna name him after his injury from birth and he will forever be labeled according to how we saw him come out at birth? Scar, like this really worried me. Okay, like these are the really big questions of life. Okay, so it didn't really worry me that much, but I'm sure Dr. Russ can deal with, with that level of issue. But, but the truth is you and I do wrestle with, with real questions and, and uh, the deep, the deep, sometimes troublesome questions of life. And maybe you've come here this morning and, and wherever you are kind of in your journey of faith with God, you definitely have real questions that uh, may be troubling you right now. Maybe questions that you've been seeking answers for for years and uh, it's kind of, you've never, you've never settled on it. Or perhaps it's, um, perhaps only recently you've kind of encountered uh, something in your life, something's gone wrong in life, something's difficult. And so now you're asking questions that maybe in your life you've never asked before. And it's presenting some tension in your world. 
This is exactly the space, not only this series, but particularly today, I want to speak into. Because the truth is, so much of our life, and you don't need me to tell you this, you, you already know this, so much of our life is defined by often a lot of the, the suffering that you and I will go through to varying degrees in our life. And perhaps in the human story, there has been not, nothing's been written about more, um, studied more, movies have been made about, plays and songs and poems have been written about, whole degrees are about um, around this idea of human suffering. Because suffering is non-discriminatory, right? It will hit the old and the young, the rich and the poor. Um, no matter where, where you're from in life, it, um, people experience suffering to greater degrees. And so, so it brings some huge questions in our life, and maybe that's what's led you here. Then there's another dynamic to add to that, which is known as evil. And the, the best we've been able to do to define the difference between what actually evil is, it's this idea that when a, an individual recognizes what can lead to a person's suffering, they go about causing a person to suffer for the purpose of their suffering. And that is one of the definitions we have of evil. And so maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've experienced suffering at the hands of another person intentionally. And we've seen this as being the story of humankind. The story of suffering is not only shaped humanity's stories, often shaped our stories. And those type of events certainly bring up some of life's biggest questions we wrestle with. Now, what do you do when you have those questions? Where do you, where do you go? Where do you turn to? And often in our conversations with people, you can come across someone who, and certainly this happened in my experience, maybe it's happened in your experience, or maybe you've been the person who has done this. And, and from a well-meaning place and a place with the right heart, we can often give an answer where someone's struggling with a deep question and they've been wrestling with it philosophically and in your minds and you've been reading and researching and, and you chat to someone about it and they don't have a good answer for you. And so they just throw this line out. They say, just believe. Now you might've experienced this on being on the receiving end of this before where someone said that to you, or you might have been, I certainly, I know I've been the perpetrator, the perpetrator of this, right? Where it's, and again, it's not necessarily, I'm not saying it to be a cop-out, like that can often come from a good place. But if we're being, let's be honest for a moment, sometimes the, what we wrestle with in life and the realities of sometimes the pain and suffering we experience, for someone to say, just believe, sometimes just doesn't cut it. And so, and, and ideas like this, and again, I'm not, I'm not having a go at the idea of just believe, but the thought that would be when you're going through something in life, when you're wrestling with some honest questions, and you're wrestling with some of the deep things in your mind, it seems like that kind of idea would lead us to have to pick one or the other. Either you've got to think your way and reason and get wisdom and get counsel and seek mentorship and research and study and use the, the, the brain God has given you, or put all that aside and, and just believe, just believe that God's got it, right? And somewhere along the line, these two things have seemed to be separated. It's either a belief thing or a thinking thing and using wisdom or rationality. And so it, it separated the two. What's, what's remarkable is we never see that encouraged right from the beginning of the Christian story. In fact, when Jesus himself, and we covered this last week, but it's important to lay this foundation again. When Jesus was asked what the greatest, the, the greatest commandment, when it comes to our relationship with God, like the greatest way of outworking our faith, if there was a command to live by, what is it? And the Gospel of Matthew records Jesus' answer to this. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Your mind. As if to say, hey, just because we're engaging with this faith deal and trusting God, right? And to learn to love the God whom you can't see, okay? With your heart and your soul. This is, not, this is not an excuse then to leave your brain at the door. And I think sometimes we've thought that Christianity means I check my brain at the door. I come into church. I don't think. It's all about feeling and emotion experience, which it 100% is. 
But Jesus is right there along with loving God with our heart and with our soul at the deep parts of us. He also said, love him with your mind, with the gift of thinking and logic and rationality. It is a gift from God to utilize it. And so right from the beginning, Christianity was never something that sought to suppress thinking and to, to suppress wisdom and to suppress logic and using the faculty that your Heavenly Father has graced you with. Christianity has always invited the thinker to exercise their minds in the pursuit of God. Okay, and this is really important, particularly if you're someone who maybe has wrestled with faith and the reason you've probably been standoff with the whole trust God thing is you thought you had to go against your better judgment of using your brain. I don't know where that began, that idea that to trust in Jesus meant you no longer use your brain. That is the worst advice I've ever heard. <laughs> but right through the millennia, Christianity has always invited the thinker to exercise their minds in the pursuit of of God. And so over this series, we want to really encourage that. But also, what does it mean? Okay, what does it mean to someone who trusts God? How are we then supposed to think? So I just want to close the door for a moment because what I'm not saying is, what I'm not saying is that somehow the way you get to God or the way you get right with God is you think your way there. I'm not saying that. No, no doubt about it. Jesus unapologetically taught and right from the New Testament taught the way you and I Get a right relationship with our Heavenly Father is by just believing. It's to trust what Jesus has done on our behalf. But now that you're in, now that you get there, now that you trust God, to think and to use the mind that God has given you to worship Him and to love Him and engage in relationship with Him, that only helps to deepen and authenticate the trust and faith that you have in God. And so maybe you've been someone that has left your thinking on the side. I want to invite you, your brains back into the conversation of faith for a moment, okay? It's really, really important. And what we're going to look at today is ultimately how then does Jesus encourage us to actually think as someone who believes in God. Now, last week we looked at one of the teachings of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament to an individual named Timothy. Timothy was like someone he mentored, someone he taught, and he, and he warned Timothy against the dangers of having essentially a closed mind. And he said, hey, don't lose your head with all the, everything that happens in, in the world and in culture and society don't get into what we, we, we use, the, I guess, the modern-day term, an echo chamber. You might have heard that before. I don't want to cover all that ground again today, but essentially the idea that you would close off your mind to counsel, to wisdom, to rationality, to people who are further in life than you to speak into your world. We can get our own echo chamber if you just keep reiterating the same thoughts and processes and ideas over and over and over and over and over and over again. This is what's known as an echo chamber. And so we warned him against that. Well, what I want to do today is I want to look at another warning that the Apostle Paul gives, but not to an individual. He gives it to, an, essentially, to Christians, to people who believe in God. It's in his letter to the church at Rome. He'd never met these people. So the book of Romans is generally understood as what they call a general epistle because he wasn't writing to a specific issue that he knew about these people. He didn't know them, didn't have a personal relationship with them. And so this is generally what we read in the book of Romans. You can read it in your own time, obviously. Um, it's generally understood as a lot of um, real general applicable Christian understanding and Christian doctrine. And so in speaking into this tension, this is from Romans chapter 12, and we pick up the words of Paul. He said, Do not conform to the, to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, now this is really important for, for us to understand here. He kind of gives like this, the first half to it, but the second half is on the back of the first half. So it's like, after you've got this first bit, then, or if the door will be open, the gate will be open, you'll have the ability to, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
Now, no, isn't this where often our questions are? We talk about the deep questions of life. Maybe you've asked yourself going, what is God's will? And particularly, as we were mentioning earlier, if you're going through suffering, if, you, if you've experienced evil, if you're going through pain or something that feels like it's unjust, we have those big questions, right? We wrestle with them. You know, God, where are you in this? What is God's will? You know, how, how, how am I supposed to believe in you? And so we search for it. And the Apostle Paul recognizes this tension in our lives. He goes, we're all asking this. We're trying to test. We're trying to approve what God's will is. And maybe you're in that tension right now in your life. And maybe you're somewhere along that tension. You've been following Jesus for a long time. And recently in life, it's like, man, you've encountered some things that now you have some deep burning questions about the nature and person of God that maybe in your beginning of your faith journey, you didn't have to wrestle with. It just wasn't a concern for you. But now you are. And you're like, I have these real big questions. That's good because it means your faith has gotten deeper. You're now asking questions that are, are generally important to you. Or maybe you're somewhere in between where it's like you're new to faith and this is so exciting. And so you've got questions because you're hungry to learn. And so they're going, I just want to know more. Like this is doing my head and I never thought that life could be like this. I never thought God was like this. This is amazing. And so your questions have come from a place of really wanting to grow. Well, perhaps for you, the thing that maybe kept you hesitant from engaging with faith is because you've got these big, deep-seated questions in your heart about the nature of God and the reality of God and you've been wrestling with them, and so you are genuinely searching for some kind of answers. And so the Apostle Paul says, before you can get there, before you can test and approve what God's will is, he goes, there is a tension we all encounter. And he says, his advice is this, he's two parts. There was, a, there was a don't and a do. The don't was, he says, don't conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there was a don't. Don't conform to the patterns of the world. The do was, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So he pitches these two ideas against each other. To conform and to transform. To conform or to transform. And here's where I want to settle today because this is a tension and maybe you haven't put it in these words, maybe that's not the words you'd use, but you hopefully will certainly relate to the tension. This idea in life, when it comes to our thinking, the patterns of thinking we have, Paul gives a warning about what you and I conform our lives over. Now the idea of conformity, obviously it's Generally, I mean, we, we kind of get innately what that means. We don't use it all the time. But in this context, better, better translated, the idea of conformity to conform, generally, generally this idea of acceptance. You accept how things are. You're settled on it. You're not going to change. You're not going to fight it. You're not going to push back. I'm just choosing to take my seat. It's kind of like the miracle that happened yesterday with the Wallabies beating the All Blacks. I'd conform to the idea that the Wallabies will never, ever, ever win a game against the All Blacks ever again, right? But they proved us wrong, right? There's my problem. I conformed. I'm, so I just want to apologize. And uh, but not to the New Zealand supporters here. We deserve it. We need it. Okay, Australia needs some encouragement. Um, so, so Paul says, hey, don't conform. Don't settle to the patterns of this world. But, and here's the do. He said, here's what to do. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the idea of transformation is to change, to grow, to flourish. And this is incredible to understand, particularly when it comes to our thinking and our minds. The idea of transforming as opposed to conforming is this. It recognizes that you and I, this is really good, you and I are not in a permanently fixed state. That your way of thinking that you have right now, that is not your lot in life. 
You don't have to conform to it. You don't have to settle on it. There is the potential inside of you. This is, and this is even like before we even get to the faith side of things. I mean, this is just proven biologically. You can transform your thinking, right? Your, your thinking doesn't have to be in a fixed state. And the Apostle Paul's smart, right? This is before we even had psychologists. He's picking something up here. And he's saying, hey, hey, when it comes to your thinking, don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, he uses this term, pattern of the world, pattern of the world. As if to recognize this, in our lives, and you're in my life, and again, you, don't, you, you, you might not use these terms, but you'll understand this because you've lived your life. The world in which you and I all grew up in had patterns. The family that you got brought up in or you were born into had certain patterns. It had certain ways of engaging and seeing and thinking about the world that you would have got brought up. Unbeknownst to you, you didn't choose the family you were born into. Well, most of you, I don't think, chose to be born into the family you were born into. So there you go. It's your lot in life. It had certain cultural proclivities. Proclivity, yeah, I'm not going to say that a second time. <laughs> um, there are certain patterns that you got taught to think along. So the environment and the community and the family you and I brought up in had certain patterns of thinking about relationships, about money and generosity, about politics, about sex, about what sport team you go for, right? About um, how to engage with anger, how to engage with jealousy, where's a good place to holiday, you know, take your pick, right? So we were all brought into certain patterns and this idea of kind of like a rut that's set for you. It's like if you've ever taken your car up to DI, you try and find the rut and you're sitting there going, uh, uh, you know, you try and stay in that rut. Well, you and I all had that kind of thing. We, were, we had the world in which we were brought up in had certain patterns, not just your family, but even your neighborhood, your school. And think about it for a moment. Think of the environment you went to school in or that your kids are in right now, okay? Think about um, the town in which you grew up in. So, so Paul says here, hey, you'll have the patterns of the world. The world in which you grew up in had certain patterns. And his warning, his don't, is don't settle necessarily for the patterns you were given. That just because you were given them doesn't mean they're right for you. So don't settle, don't determine, particularly if, they've, if it's given you ways of thinking about the world, and particularly if it's giving you certain thinkings about God, and if they're not helpful, and if they're not leading you to be anything like Jesus, and if they're not leading you to be more like Jesus to the world around you, Paul's warning, not just to the Romans, but to you and I, was, hey, choose not to conform to the patterns of the world that you were brought into, okay? Which is really interesting, because this works in, in both a positive context and a negative context. Um, a, a fascinating thing that I've um, recently kind of come out studies around in psychology is this idea that they've noticed a pattern, and this is so fascinating to figure. They've noticed a pattern with those globally who are at the head of their fields, right? And I mean, that's a cool thing to aspire for, to be the top of your game, to be a leader in your field. So they've noticed a, com a common pattern with people who are the head in their field, whether, you know, economics or science, medicine, in art, in sport, whatever, whatever it might be. One of the most significant common denominators with people who are the, the, the elite, the best, is that they all seem to grow up, the well, majority seem to grow up in small communities, in small towns. And so as I began to kind of dig into this, why is, what, you know, what part does that play to people who seem to be the, the best at their field? The best they've been able to figure is this. If you grew up in a small town or a small community or a small school and had a small class, it was more likely that you were going to be the best at something in the community you're in. Like, for example, if you only had a small class in a small school or a small town, it's very likely that you could, you know, win the spelling bee contest. 
Or it's very likely that you could have been the person who was the fastest in your grade, right? Or even, you know, the fastest in town. Or you could have been the person who won the best art category at the local show, whatever it was. And so if there's more chances of you winning something, you had more serotonin-filled experiences, the idea of the happy mental hormone, right, to make you feel good. So, so people had more of experiences like this in small communities. They generally grew up with patterns of thinking that lent themselves to kind of being positive and lent themselves to being confident and lent themselves to looking at competition and, and kind of bettering themselves with the idea of, hey, if I really apply myself, I'm going to like dominate. I'm a winner. And then there might only be three people in your class, but you know, that's awesome. I've just entered a race and the last year was only 10 people in it. So I'm hoping to get a podium finish this year, you know, like just feel good. So, but this is a common thing. And so these people then, as they progress in life, they've had this pattern of thinking about themselves and thinking about challenges and thinking about applying themselves that the serotonin they experienced by getting an easy win led them to this kind of pattern of thinking life that I'm a champion, I'm a winner, whatever I apply myself to, man, I'm going to dominate. But pitch that against the other experience. You know, if you grew up in a large community or a large city or a large school, some of you are going, yep, that's my problem, you know, where it's like if you always were trying hard, but you never got there and you never had the chance to stand on the podium or never had the chance to have your art displayed in your kindergarten class. Your parents didn't even put your picture on their fridge. You know, like, you're like, that's my problem. I had too many siblings to compete against, right? I can relate. Me too. I had that too. So, okay, no one laughed at that either. Okay, I've got there's five of us in my family. So, so but th- this is a, a real practical example in psychology where they recognize that the world in which you and I grew up in gave us certain patterns of thinking, obviously can work for better or for worse. And they can recognize now that later in life, certain patterns of thinking, people that end up more cynic, more of a cynic as they get older or more angry or more adverse and more against kind of changing and, you know, people that don't, I don't like change, they can often relate it back to where we experienced something that taught us a pattern when we were younger. And it's to that space the Apostle Paul would say, don't conform to the patterns of the world. Or in other words, saying this, don't settle for patterns of unhealthy thinking. Don't settle for it. Because, and, and it's like, almost like he highlights, and this is amazing to get your head around, when we recognize that maybe I have unhealthy thinking, maybe the, the environments or the cultures or the families or the life I got brought up in, maybe it's I'm going around the same mindsets and the same ideas over and over and over again. And when, a lot of times, when, and this is what, it's incredible how this is shown through our culture, when people recognize that, our tendency, and this is, a, this is a huge danger for all of us, there is a temptation where instead of doing what the Apostle Paul suggests by, hey, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, we see that we have some wrong thinking, and so instead of looking to see our allies transform, we go about transforming the world around us and wanting the world to conform to our way of thinking. And so instead of taking responsibility for our wrong thinking, we just demand that the world agrees with our wrong way of thinking, and we get angry if they don't. And the Apostle Paul says, warning against that. Hey, 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 hey. Don't expect the whole world to change to align with how you think. There's something that can change inside of you. And he uses the term, this is amazing. He said it's about the renewal of your minds. The renewal of your minds. Meaning this, don't, you know, don't conform to the patterns, but be transformed. Let your life be changed and made brand new by the renewal of your minds. So when he's talking about life change, he doesn't begin with certain practical things to do. He begins with the realm of our thinking, the realm of our thoughts. It says we are, it's about renewal. Now, we obviously don't use renewal all the time in our lives, so it's kind of Bible speak. But it comes from the same root word that we get now in our English language, renovation. 
So from renewal, the same kind of route where we get renovation, meaning this. Now, this is, you're Aussies, right? You're particularly Queenslanders. So you guys get renovation. You also get the fact that there is great trauma involved in renovations, right? Some of you right now already are having post-traumatic stresses because I'm reminding you of the experience of what you're going through maybe now with the renovation in your house. Trust me, we, we went through that experience and it was one of the most delightful experiences of my entire married life was renovating our house, right? Renovation is a big deal. So we, we decide, you know, who's here done it? Who's done some kind of renovation or the bat to go through? Okay, you guys get it, right? So, so maybe you're those people that watch the block and you love it and all you want to do is renovate, renovate, renovate. All that happens with renovations, I'm reminded of how much of a man I am not, okay? Because I'm there struggling. What is this? It's a hammer. Oh, yeah, okay. So, so we went about trying to renovate our house. We wanted to change our floors a couple of years ago. And so we realized there was some hardwood flooring in our house and had all this old carpet and vinyl. So Chloe and I were like, let's renovate. Let's renovate our house. And so began the four-month process of every single weekend being covered in dust and covered in sawdust and, um, and, and all the wonderful things that come with renovation. So we began like ripping out carpets, we began ripping up vinyl. I, I think I counted over 1,200 nails I had to pull out with the plier by hand, so that it did wonders for my masculine fingers. So it was just, it was a wonderful experience. It really wasn't. Like it was, it was, it was out of my comfort zone. I was like, oh man, we have to kind of get rid of all this old. So we went about you know, ripping it all out, and then we slowly chopped all the carpet in little bits so we could dump it in all of our neighbors' solo bins. You know, so they, joke, joking, I, I, didn't re- I, didn't, I didn't really do that. Um, I thought about it. But anyway, so once we got rid of that, it was a huge process, getting rid of all the old. But then began the process of, hey, we can now do something new with it. So then once we kind of sanded all the floors, we then able to apply all, all the kind of the new oil on it, and then it, it looked beautiful. And this is what renovation is. It's this idea of you've got to first get rid of the old, and then, only then, once you've gotten rid of the old, can you replace it then now with the new? It would be no good me going in with all the kind of oil to paint over it, over the carpet and the vinyl. You know, that would have been stupid. <laughs> so you've got to get rid of the old before you can replace with the new. And this is what the Apostle Paul says for you and I is necessary for our minds, is that we would go through a renovation of our minds to recognize that our thinking, and maybe if we found ourselves in patterns of thinking, that had led to patterns of behavior and that had led to patterns of our character, which ultimately defined our life. When you identify, man, I have learned this thinking from somewhere and it has not led to anything healthy in my life. This is where the Apostle Paul would say, man, this is, this is where you need to invite God into your thinking for a moment. Because you sit there and go, okay, if I'm not to conform to the patterns of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of my, of my mind, how do I do that? Jesus, right into that space, he was so bold and was so clear about saying this is exactly the realm and the space where the Holy Spirit works best at home in our lives. Internally, healing, renovating, changing, molding, shaping where our thinking has been harmful and unhelpful and begin to renew us in our thinking. And this is the space when you learn to put your trust in Jesus Christ, you get given the promise of the very spirit that was in Jesus Christ, the very thing that made Christ so unique, the very thing that make, made Christ so powerful, the very thing that made Christ stand out from above the rest is the very same spirit now that has been promised to you, that you get to have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And where he works, he starts and begins in how you and I think. And he begins a process of renewal and cleansing and healing and renovation in our Thinking. Here's how Jesus put it. Jesus was asked about this tension, and, uh, and he was approached by a religious leader in his time, and this is in the Gospel of John. 
This is how the story goes. It says, there was a Pharisee. The Pharisee was like a, a religious teacher, a religious leader in ancient Israel. There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he was a man of significant position in Jerusalem. And he came to Jesus at night. And the reason he came to Jesus at night is because no one else in the Jewish ruling council um, liked Jesus. They're all intimidated by him. They're all fearful of him. But this guy's like, Jesus, we get you're onto something. But he couldn't let his mates know. So he came at night. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, if you're kind of new to church, you're not familiar with kind of scripture and Bible, this term might like stand out to you going, what the heck does that mean? It's a, it's a radical term, and it's a term that Jesus obviously introduced here to speak about the genuinely radical transformation that happens in our life when we come to faith in God, it is as big as you and I literally getting born again. But that obviously presents attention. You're going, well, how does, how does that work, exactly being born again? And this is exactly what Nicodemus asked Jesus. So he goes on and says, how can a man, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asks, and surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Fair question. And Jesus concludes by saying this, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And so Jesus prevents, presents this radical new idea about life as if to suggest the transformation that takes place in your life when the Holy Spirit begins to make his home inside of you. It's as significant and as lasting and as massive as if you are having a second chance at life. That's how big it is. And the best term Jesus could come up for it, which is amazing, he said it's like being born again. Now, it's obviously not a biological rebirth. That's why Jesus said, look, I'm not referring to biologists. That's why he said flesh gives birth to flesh, meaning Biology gives birth to biology, but he says the Spirit gives birth to Spirit, meaning there's something that the Spirit of God is able to do in our life, irrespective of the changes on the outside of you, because where the Holy Spirit begins His work is on the inside of our lives. And this is such an important principle to understand about how the Holy Spirit works. He is always at work renovating our lives, clearing out old thinking, removing the muddied waters of our thinking, bringing clarity to our thinking, and then introducing a new way of thinking about life, thinking about yourself, thinking about God. This is exactly the realm of where the Holy Spirit wants to work in our lives. I remember seeing this in such a profound way a number of years ago where I had the chance of hearing the story of a gentleman from uh, South Africa. And um, before he came to faith in Christ, he was explaining how he was... Uh, uh, a, a huge, just a, a, such a big racist. Like he was, he was so hateful. He was a, a massively racist to people, and let him, it was a violent man. Who was, and that was kind of the, the world he grew up in. That's kind of always the way he thought, and the way he practiced, and the way he understood life. And then he came to faith in Jesus. Had nothing to do with his stance on race or any of those things. He just encountered the message of Christ. He surrendered his life to it. And then, to his surprise, something began to change in him, where he noticed. That all of a sudden, the very people that he's always been taught to hate and the people he just hated and he had kind of racist ideas towards, he found himself changing. And no one told him this. No one said he was wrong in this regard. He felt something inside of him just begin to change. And he began to love the very people that he previously hated. 
And the only way he could describe what took place in him is that this seems to be what Jesus was talking about, that there would be a rebirth or a renewal that would happen when the Holy Spirit begins to take his home inside of our life. Here's the thing. He said his biology didn't change. Other people's biology didn't change. His education didn't change. His background didn't change. What changed? It was what was happening in between his ears, in his mind. And his whole viewpoint and the whole way of thinking about the world would radically change because the Holy Spirit had began doing a renovation in his life. And as much as that's an extreme example, this is exactly where God is interested in your life and in my life and helping us to grow through all the things you and I have to think about and transition and navigate and filter through filter through our minds. Ultimately, the goal of God's Spirit working our life is to teach you and I how to have, in the Apostle Paul's words, the mind of Christ. That we would begin to think about ourselves and about the world and about life and about God in the same mind that Christ had. It's why, for example, you can look at someone who's maybe further down their spiritual journey and further down their relationship with Christ, and you see how they engage with a certain topic or certain people. Maybe it's an area of forgiveness, and they just they seem to be able to forgive freely people who have wronged them and people who have harmed them. And you look at them and go, I do not know how you do that. And they can kind of give you three steps to learning to forgive, but it's like it just doesn't make sense to me. But it is a process that eventually the Holy Spirit will do in someone's life. It will continue to transform and renovate our minds until we think like Jesus works in so many areas in our life. We're working the, I mean, Alison was earlier talking about generosity. And you might look at people who, who take a whole percentage of their income and freely give it. And you're like, oh, that just does not make logical sense to me. And again, someone who does it is like, something changed in me. It's like all of a sudden I began to think how Jesus thought and generosity didn't become a burden. Generosity became a pleasure and I want to do it. And it can go on and on and on. We learn to think and engage with the world how Jesus did. It becomes how we then begin begin to want to serve the world, not just criticize the world. We want to begin to reach people. We don't just want to kind of live in our own clays. We want to begin to honor people. And ultimately, we want to learn what it is to find our fulfillment in Christ. And this is the huge area where the Holy Spirit is always teaching you and I how to have the mind of Christ. But there's no doubt about it. This stuff can be hard work. This stuff can feel like we are laboring and we are toiling and we, we are like, oh, renovation doesn't seem like glamorous work. But the, the good news is for you. You're not the renovator of your own life. You have the helper, the Holy Spirit, who's interested in helping to clear up, heal, make right our thinking. Jesus referred to this idea, he said, unless you're born by water and the Spirit. And that term water, particularly in Jesus' context in ancient Israel back when water was scarce, water spoke of cleansing, of washing. Like It was an incredibly powerful picture of what happens when we begin to trust Jesus. It is like a washing of our past begins to happen. And where there's been muddied water or wrong thinking, the more you surrender to Jesus, the more your thinking begins to radically change. And then the Spirit is able to build something new in our lives. The, um, I'll finish with this, this study. Uh, it's been well kind of documented and recorded by um, particularly psychologists who have worked in the field of trauma rehabilitation that are dealing with some of the, the biggest troubles and suffering of life and some of the big questions that happen, particularly when injustice has come across someone's life. What has the biggest impact on how a person recovers and is transformed through trauma isn't just the fact that they might believe in God or not. 
it's more to the fact is what do they think about the God that they believe in? That's what matters most. And so when it comes to you and I, where, wherever you stand in the God thing, the question is then, well, how, what do we think about that God? Do you think he's a God who loves, as we're singing about, or do you think he's a God who's angry with you? Do you think he's a God that is present in your suffering, or do you think he's a God that is indifferent to your suffering? And the more and more we go over how we navigate the big questions of life, you know, trying to test and approve what God's will is, the more and more we wrestle with that, the more we need to ask the question, what would the mind of Christ be like here? And what does the life of Jesus show us about what God is like? And so this morning, I want to ask you, whatever you're navigating and whatever maybe patterns in your world and patterns in your life that you're working through and you maybe identify in your life that this pattern of thinking has not been helpful to me. Well, I wonder if you need to then begin to invite the Spirit of God to begin to renovate, to begin to wash, begin to heal and renew your thinking. You are not in a fixed state. How you are right now does not have to be the end of your story. You can have a complete born again story to tell about your life. So here's, I think it might be a helpful prayer in one way or another for you and I to pray in our own time in our lives. Is this idea is, Heavenly Father, would you help me to see the patterns in my life to turn from? And would you let your spirit renovate new thinking inside of me? And God, that is our prayer this morning with um, hundreds and hundreds of stories here that are unique and precious to you all the different paths and journeys people have walked that have kind of led us to thinking how we think today. Holy, Holy Spirit, I'm asking today that you would begin to renovate and change our thinking where it's been unhelpful. Help us to identify patterns that have only been leading to our harm and others around us, their harm. Help us today to think with the mind of Christ. We give you permission Father, I pray today particularly for those people here, maybe that recognize just maybe for them to think changing their thinking just seems like an uphill, impossible task. I pray today there'd be encouragement in their life knowing that you are for them and you're on their side. And I pray today you would begin a journey of renovation inside of them that would change their life forever. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were encouraged by what you heard and inspired to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. Hope you can join us again on the next podcast or here at Suncoast Church.